Good morning, everybody. Nice to see everybody here this morning. The new books are in the back if you didn't get one. These black books. And it's on Hebrews. I tried to put some on both sides, so if you need one, or I can give you this one if you need. <laughs> All right. No, nope. none of them have the answers. Your answers are in the Bible, like always. <laughs> All right. All right, to start with, in this book, <clears throat> the introduction here is, uh, I think it's pretty important because they're trying to get us to focus on the, the way the letter is written and the way it's laid out. So I just want to start here in the introduction. Uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews is a unique book in the New Testament. It begins as an essay, progresses as a sermon, and ends as a letter. Its contents are deep and challenging. Many Christians find it difficult, and some equate its difficulty with the book of Revelation. But for Christians willing to take the time to read and reflect upon it, they will be reminded of how blessed they are to have trusted in Christ, impressed with the superiority of Christ and his new covenant over Moses and the old covenant, warned of the danger of apostasy and the need for steadfastness in their faith. Now the author of the book does not, or the letter does not identify himself. Many believe it to be Paul and Right off in the first few verses, it's one of these big, long, run-on sentences, which I equate with Paul a lot in some of the other letters, which it always is like all these different pieces that are put together, and you have to kind of break it down and take them a piece at a time to understand them, and that's how this letter starts. Let's see. Um, anyway, so many have offered arguments in his favor, being Paul. Uh, but it seems unlikely when you consider certain statements like was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And it suggests the author received the gospel message secondhand while Paul declared that he had not received the gospel from or through men. And of course, other names have been proposed, other people I've heard of. I hadn't heard of Barnabas before. I'd heard of Apollos and even uh, possibly Timothy because it seems to be written in a style very similar to Paul's sometimes, so, but it's not really that important. The ultimate author is God, and that's what's important. You know, the, last, uh, the last chapter, it says, from us who are in Rome, greet you and so on, and several words that lead you to believe it could be Paul. But could be. There's, there's a, a number of things where people say it, it is Paul or maybe it's Paul. Whoever it is, like you said. In the end, it all came from God, so I, I think we're okay with not absolutely knowing for sure the author of it. And I have said before, I think I have said that, uh, accidentally just said that Paul, you know, saying like, oh, Paul said in these verses, but really it's not Paul. We don't know for sure. It's, it's someone, the Hebrew writers, why? why people use that phrase so much. Okay, so if we look at this, the uh, letter was written to Jewish Christians. Not sure exactly where they were. They, they mention here many believe the recipients were in Palestine and the author was in Rome. 
And like you mentioned just a second ago, that kind of suggests that. And others think the readers were in Rome and the author was elsewhere. Possibly. Uh, in any case, though, this was intended to be for Jewish Christians. And it does sound like the author knew them personally. The date of the book, we uh, know from what they're saying here, we know the epistle was written prior to 96 AD. However, they believe there are indications it could have been written much earlier because there's no mention of the destruction of the temple or Jerusalem. And uh, some of the statements they make as if priests are still offering sacrifices there at the temple, which would not be happening after that. So, let's see. If the Jewish Christians were in Palestine, it was likely before or at the beginning of the Jewish wars. And they put that around 66 to 70 A.D. So the time frame of 63 to 65 A.D. is often suggested. I don't know why that is, but that's okay. Um, oh, because, because it would have been before the wars. Okay, I got you. So one interesting thing, you know, we know the A.D. is year of our Lord, right? I've seen it happening, and you'll see it coming up. People are trying to replace A.D. with C.E., Common Era. Just remember it's still A.D. It's the same thing. They just don't want it to say year of our Lord because they don't like the idea that it refers to Jesus. So if you see dates in C.E., just know that that's still A.D. They just, they're just trying to rename it. All right. The purpose and theme of this letter... The author wrote this epistle to prevent his readers from abandoning their faith in Christ, to encourage his Jewish brethren not to go back to the old law. He endeavored to show the superiority of Christ and his covenant. A key word found throughout the epistle is better. And you do see all these things mentioned, and we're going to see some of this right off the bat. Christ is better than the angels. We enjoy the bringing in of a better hope. Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. And he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has established, which was established on better promises. And the heavenly things benefit from better sacrifices. And it talks about the purpose of the epistle is to exhort his readers to remain faithful to the much better things that we have in Jesus Christ. So, he's going to give us an outline here, which I think is very good. That's one reason I'm kind of taking the time to go through this. I think this kind of organizes our thoughts and helps us look at this in an organized manner. If you look at this outline, the superiority of Christ, he's going to go through that. Jesus being better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron. Because he's the son of God. He's the perfect one, right? And then we're going to go through the superiority of the new covenant because it has better promises. It's based on a better sanctuary and a better sacrifice. And then exhortations, draw near to God and hold fast. Run the race of faith with endurance. And you'll notice running the race, that again is a theme that Paul mentions elsewhere. So it's another thing. If this person was not Paul, it was someone, it seems like, close to Paul or knew Paul. 
and then some other exportation uh, exhortations and then there are key warnings in the letter warning against drifting against departing disobedience and dullness and against despising and against defying I'm kind of guiding us through this I'm not reading every one of these points but you can definitely see that all of these are warnings of things that we do not want to engage in so if we look at questions just based on the introduction here who is the author of the book of Hebrews Oh, that's a good answer. The Holy Spirit, God, is the author of the book of Hebrews, and that's what matters, right? We don't really know the person, but that's fine. It doesn't have to, we don't have to know that. Okay, so who were the original recipients of this letter? Hebrews. Jewish Christians, right? So Jewish Christians, not exactly sure where they, where they were or where they are, possibly in Palestine or Rome? Yes? I was thinking that in, in going through the book that the Christians here could use this with all references to the old law to convince, maybe convince, and talk to uh, non-Jewish Hebrews who were still out there and maybe show them. This, this explains it better. This, this goes through the old law and shows shows that this is the way that God promised. Yeah, that you could use that with other non-Christian Jews that would be in, you know, that you could talk to and reason with. Yeah. Yeah, this this would be a great letter for that. Cuz they would understand all those references much better than a Gentile, especially back then who didn't grow up in that uh, society. Okay, so when was it written? And you can, there's a couple of different answers you can give. <laughs> Probably before AD 70. Yeah. I put, I put we. Right, it says likely between 63 and 65 AD, and, but, uh, Definitely before 96 AD. So I kind of went with the definitely before this and then, you know, probably around that time frame. So, and that's because, of, again, that there's no mention of the destruction of the temple or Jerusalem. And it seems to imply that sacrifices were still ongoing in the temple. All right, so number four. What has been suggested as its purpose or its theme? Or you can tell us what you think its purpose and theme is. Right, to exhort Christians to remain faithful, right? Anything else? Right, to base their hope on Jesus and not on the old law. So it was also to show the superiority of Christ and the new covenant. So that they would want to, like you say, base their faith on Jesus and the, and the new covenant rather than the old.
Okay, so if we look at number five, and you can actually look in the book and see this, but what are the three main divisions of the epistle? Uh, the way this person did it. Right, the superiority of Christ. The superiority of the new covenant, right? And then there's exhortations drawn from the fact that the new covenant and Jesus is superior to the old. We have better hope too. Right, we have better hope. Uh, we have really we have better everything under the new covenant. It's it's very hard to define just one thing. Yes, Jim. And as Christians, we now have access to God, which we didn't have before. Uh, I'm speaking of us Gentiles, but also the uh, Jews had to go. Everything went through the high priest. Right. And they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. And now, spiritually, we really can go directly to God through the Lord. So that's true. So it, it's better even for the Jews, who you could say had some kind of partial access through the priest, but not as good as what they would have now. Okay, so then I did my own notes wrong. It's kind of funny. But anyway, so list the six warnings found in this epistle. And you can... I think, again, he lists them off in the book here. Disobedience, yep. Drifting. Drifting is one if you drift away, because, you know, sometimes we get lackadaisical and we just kind of drift off. There's departing. I would, I would think that's similar to uh, drifting in a way, but there is uh, some difference in the way they mention it here. Yeah, we can depart too, we can just let our faith, you know, sort of weaken and weaken to a person we know. Not quite in the Lord anymore. Right, till we've just, we've just wandered off the path and we're just out in the weeds or with the rest of the world and we've lost, lost track. There's also dullness. Dullness, let's see. Talking about dullness of hearing, making it difficult to appreciate our blessings and falling away to the point of crucifying the Son of God again, you know, where we're not really uh, making an effort. We're not really appreciating our blessings or what Christ has done for us. Despising. And they say it's possible to despise God's grace as to no longer have a sacrifice for sins, but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment. And then define when we refuse to listen to God and refuse to go his way. We say, no, I want to go my way. I want to do this my way. I want to have my way. And that's... It's fairly common for us, really, as people. So. so those are the six warnings against doing those things. Yes, Dan? When you look at these warnings and you look back at how Israel was centuries and centuries before, 
all the things that are mentioned here are things that they had done as a nation. They had turned away from God, uh, despised God, didn't heed his warnings, didn't trust him. These are all things that you go through the book and the Jews should be able to recognize, knowing their history, how this is just going over telling them, don't do these things. Right, and these are all things they've done in the past that Israel has done. And Israel is always a good example. If you want to look at us and our society and look at yourself, because, you know, the gospel, it's a lot about self-examination. You can just look back at their example and see that we do the same things and that we have the same problems. Nothing has really changed in that regard. Um, hopefully we have changed ourselves, though, you know, that we have accepted Christ and moved forward. But as a whole, humanity always has these issue, issues. So that's it for the introduction, unless anyone has anything else on that. All right. So we'll read uh, Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, this is part of that big run-on sentence that I mentioned earlier, but you'll notice if you take it a piece at a time, it's easier to understand. And part of what he's saying here in verse 2 is Jesus has authority over all things. He, he owns all things, and he made the universe or made everything who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now here again, Jesus is our representation of God, our example of God here. After establishing our forgiveness, our salvation for sin, he ascended and sat at the right hand of God having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And now he's going to get to the point about Jesus being greater and above the angels. Here in the first part, this is talking about relating Jesus as being better than the prophets and in the way that, uh, the way that God spoke through the prophets before. Okay, so, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will grow old like a garment, 
Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So here, at the last, the, the writer repeats the purpose of the angels so that all will understand that they are servants of the children of God. They are servants and not the same as the Son. And I did not go through the points here. I was just reading the chapter. But if you notice the points to ponder and things, Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets and superior to the angels. So, well, question number one, what are the main points of this chapter? We basically just said that, right? Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets and he's superior to the angels. Right. What comes through the Lord, what comes through Jesus is right. is the final. We have everything we need now. They, right. They didn't before. God was leading for years and years, leading people towards his towards the promise that he promised. And now we have it. It's all laid out for us. Right. We have everything we need now in the Bible, but back then, and that's part of what uh, he's talking about in those first verses is that you know, God spoke through the prophets in various different ways at various different times, revealing portions of his word and his will. And, you know, now, finally, Jesus comes and brings everything. And now through him and the apostles, we have everything that we need. We have a complete, a complete book, basically, of God's will for us. So, okay, we may have messed this up a little bit, but question two, how did God speak in times past? Well, through the fathers, too, yeah, through the fathers and the patriarchs, and then the, pa and, and the prophets, right. Prophets were giving God's word to give to Right, right. But God did speak to like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob also. So that's that's worth noting that he did speak to the patriarchs and that they they were responsible at least within their family to to uh share that. So and how does he speak to us today? Yeah. Phyllis just held up the Bible. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, he speaks to us today through his word, the Bible. If you said through the Lord, through Jesus, I would agree with that as well. Because he's still speaking to us through the Bible. Yes. Through the, 
Through the Holy Spirit, yes. Yeah. Anything else on that? All right. So, list seven things that describe the sun, and they notice, they, they point out, you can see this in verses two and three. Um, it is a, there is a little list of things, and we can try to get each of those. If you look at those, All right, I'll get us started here. He is appointed the heir of all things, meaning he owns, has authority over all things, right? Okay, so he has that. Right, right, but we're referring to what's being said here. So you're right, he is a better high priest and intercessor for us, definitely. Uh, what they're looking for here is what's in these <coughs> verses here. If we look at this, um, he made everything. He made the universe. Basically, through him, God made the worlds. Um, he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of God's person. He totally represents and represented, when he was here, God. Totally and completely. When we need an example of God, we should be looking at the Lord. He purged our sins, right? He set up... And he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he upholds all things... By, they phrased it by the word of his power, I would say by the power of his word, but either way, it's still, through him, everything is maintained and held up and working and in existence. So that's the seven things for there. Does anyone have anything on that? All right. Question number four. I almost read my answers rather than the question. List five ways that Jesus is superior to the angels. And you can see those sprinkled throughout the verses here. Well, the first and most important, I think, well, to me it's important. Uh, he is the Son of God. He is the Son, and angels are not the Son. That's right. He does receive worship. He is. He is the firstborn who receives worship from angels. He receives worship. Also, he is God enthroned. He's enthroned. He's with God there. Uh, like we said, at the right hand of God, he's anointed. Angels are merely servants. And the author made sure to mention that again at the end of, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of this chapter. And he, yes, Pat. I was going to say, there's different places where the angels uh would come to people and they would bow down to them and, and they were told to get up because they were not to be worshipped. Right. And that, I think, is when Paul was shipwrecked at another time. I think 
in Revelation where yep. John saw the angels and he bowed down and they told him to get up. Yeah, John does that. And yeah, I, there's several times, and and angels always say no, don't do that because I'm I'm just a servant. You know, they'll say something to that effect. So, right, that's true. I'm not sure. Um, with our study, when we found out that the angel of God was Christ, I'm not sure if uh, that happened. If anybody bowed down, they were told to get up. I'm not sure. Do you know anything about that? From what I remember of our examples and the things we looked at, uh, Jesus, the angel of the Lord, never, never said, don't worship me. I, 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 matter of fact, I think at one point he uh, tells them to take their shoes off. They're on holy ground. Is that with Joshua? Do you remember that, Jim? Well, I know it happened with Moses, but I was thinking it happened again with Joshua. So, so yeah. But nonetheless, I, I think both of those occurrences, he didn't say not to bow down or not to worship, but he said this is holy ground. So, and I don't remember all our examples from that, but I do remember that series on that. He does have the scepter. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is ruler. He is king. And he is seated at the right hand of God. Exactly. That's another point. That's another one of the points here. The only one we didn't mention is that he is the Lord, the eternal creator, because all things were created through him. But yes, so he is all these things. He is... He is sovereign, he is king, he is the Lord, he is enthroned. Again, the differences are the angels are ministering spirits, they are servants. He is the Son of God. So, question number five, for whom have the angels been sent forth to minister? Well, they many do. Times, many times. They do. I think, uh, today. They do worship and minister to God, the Lord. Yeah, in this in this specific instance, though, yes, uh, talking about uh, the children of God, those who inherit salvation, which all of us can inherit salvation through the Lord, through Jesus. So that's what. That's who they minister to. Now, there's a lot of references to the Old Testament passages here in these verses. Oh, and I guess, I apologize. I guess our time is up. We'll pick up here with number six next week. So, I want to thank you all for your time and for your interaction.